Our passage this morning is Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 52. Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 43. As you're finding it, we re-enter the story of Jesus Christ just after his sleepless night of agonizing prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane when he submitted to the Father's will to take the wrath in our place. And as he arises from that night of prayer, Judas arrives with an armed mob to arrest him. Now, we'll pray before we, we begin, um, but what I believe this passage is going to show us is something pretty simple, but I think it'll be strengthening for us, is that Jesus fulfilled Old Testament scripture by the way he conducted himself here during his arrest. Jesus fulfilled Old Testament scripture by surrendering to those who came to arrest him. If you, and you can do this if you'd like, if you look at your table of contents in your Bible, you'll see that the majority of the books in the Bible are under a heading called Old Testament. There's Old Testament, New Testament. That word Old Testament, that term, it might be better if we refer to it as the First Testament. Because it's not old, it's not like expired and not needed anymore. It's all God's word. That Old Testament was the Hebrew scriptures that God's people used as God's revelation for generations and generations up to Jesus' birth and then the writing of the New Testament. And as you look at that table of contents and you see all those books, woven all through those is anticipation. All through those, from Genesis 3 on, is looking ahead for a figure who is going to come who is known as the Messiah, the, the Savior King who would come and remove the sins of God's people and enable them to be reunited with God again. And so we are going to see that Jesus fulfilled all those Old Testament prophecies this morning. And my prayer, my hope is that it'll call forth faith from us and it'll strengthen our faith in a very real way. So let's pray together before we read it. Father, would you please speak to us now in your word in a powerful way that each individual one of us can understand and receive and be transformed by, regardless of our age or what other things may be on our mind or what has happened this week or what we're headed toward in the week to come, would you please, your Holy Spirit now, would you please come upon us, settle our minds, settle our hearts, and speak to us. And I ask that you would call forth faith from us in Jesus, and that you would strengthen our faith in Jesus this morning. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. So we'll enter back in at verse 43. And the first thing I want you to notice is how treacherous Jesus' enemies were. How backstabbing and sneaky and twisted they were. Verse 43. And immediately, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. So right off the bat, Judas is at the head of the mob, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to dwell on it at length, but as it says here, he was one of the twelve, one of the twelve disciples leading the mob to come and arrest Jesus. He is one who should have been in the garden praying with Jesus, 
keeping watch with Jesus, but instead he was off scheming with Jesus' enemies. As we read on in verse 44, now the betrayer, Judas, had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. Now a kiss in that culture was a normal greeting for a student to give to a teacher. So he said, okay, when we get in there into the garden, it's going to be dark. There may be lots of people around. I'm going to give you a signal so you know which one to seize, to grab hold of, and drag away. It'll be the one that I go up and give a kiss to. Now, it sounds weird to us, but that would be about like a handshake or one of those, you know, handshake with one arm, hug with the other arm, greetings. That would have been normal. He says, the one that I give the kiss to, that's the one. Verse 45. And when he came, he went up to Jesus at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Rabbi was a very respectful greeting. A rabbi was a teacher and a master. So you didn't just learn from a rabbi. You followed the rabbi and looked up to them. It it was a very respectful way for Judas to greet Jesus. Now just try to imagine it. What facial expression would you have had on your face if you were Judas doing this? What facial expression do you think Jesus had on his face? They both knew what was going on, and yet Judas, one of the twelve, betrays Jesus with a kiss and with the word rabbi. So that's one layer of treachery, twistedness, sneakiness, backstabbing. There's another layer to it. If you'll go back with me to verse 43, look at who sent this mob to come and arrest Jesus. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, And with him a crowd with swords and clubs. From where? From the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now we have no modern equivalent to the chief priests, scribes, and elders that I can point to and say this is kind of what these folks were like. These were the authority figures in the religious Jewish system. And they didn't have separation of church and state like we do, so they were were both the religious authorities and their national authorities. These were big deal people in the Jewish religious system. The high priests, the chief priests were were high-ranking priests. The uh, scribes were the ones who hand-transcribed God's word. They were experts in the Old Testament scriptures. These were the authorities. They were like professors and lawyers rolled into one, experts in God's word. The elders were mature, respected leaders among God's people. So you get the picture. These were, this was not a satanic cult coming to arrest Jesus. This, these, it was not radical Islamic terrorists coming after Jesus. It wasn't even the pagan Romans coming to arrest Jesus. It was the people who should have been on Jesus' team. But no, they rejected Jesus. They fulfilled what Psalm 118.11 said. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. These leaders of God's people were like the builders, and they should have recognized Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. He is the cornerstone to this whole structure of God's people. But they were so hardened by their sin and their ongoing rejection of God's word, that they actually were the ones who came to arrest him or sent the mob to do it for them. So we see how treacherous Jesus' enemies are. Now let's notice how violent Jesus' enemies are. First, back in verse 43, we see that they brought weapons with them. Do you see that in verse 43? 
with Judas a crowd with swords and clubs. Now, why would you bring swords and clubs with you? Unless you thought maybe there was a chance you were going to have to stab somebody or beat somebody. Today, this was not like a religious meeting that went askew. They came like a Jewish SWAT team kicking in the front door to take Jesus forcibly against his will. They were armed. As we read on in their scheme, the language they use makes it plain that they plan to grab hold of Jesus against his will and inflict harm upon him. The betrayer gave them a sign in verse 44 saying, the one I kiss is the man. He's the one for you to talk to. He's the one for you to reason with. No, seize him and lead him away under guard. And then down in verse 46, sure enough, they laid hands on him and seized him. That language, anywhere you see it in the Bible, always includes an intention to harm somebody. So this was a violent mob there to do damage and to take Jesus away at any cost. And then we see what breaks out in verse 47. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now he says here is a bystander. In the book of John, if you read it, he actually identifies who this person is who lopped off the ear of the high priest's servant. Can anybody guess who it might be knowing the disposition of the disciples? It was Peter. So it gives you a sense of the atmosphere there. If Peter drew a sword and lopped off the ear of the high priest's servant. Now either Peter was an expert marksman and he meant to slice the ear off to send a message. We're not going to listen to you guys or something. Or he was trying to kill him. I mean, if I'm swinging a sword at you and I get your ear, you can pretty much guarantee what I was aiming at was probably your head. And Peter was going to just cleave this guy's head right in half, probably. Maybe he was just swinging wildly. Who knows? It was Peter. But we get the picture that this is a violent confrontation. Hearts are pounding. Adrenaline is pumping. Blood is spurting. Minds are racing. Now it all slows down. And we get to the main point of the passage, I believe. Jesus' response. So all this action phases a slow motion now. And Jesus responds. How would you have responded? Jesus responded by talking to them, by talking to the violent, treacherous mob. First, he talks to them about their violence in verse 48. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? In other words, he says to them, Why are you armed? Do you think I'm like a, a criminal? What about my teaching and my life up to this point made you think that you needed to come with swords and clubs to capture me? And then he talks to them about their treachery in verse 49. Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. In other words, why are you here in the middle of the night in this garden where I've been praying? Just the other day I was with you in broad daylight on your turf Right there, you could have just grabbed me then. Why didn't you? Now, of course, he knows the reason they didn't was because they knew that the crowds would have risen up against them. But he doesn't go any further into it because that's not really his purpose at this moment. His purpose at this moment comes at the end of verse 49. And this is really the, what I want you to hang on to as you leave. He said, 
I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. So Jesus knows they're wrong in what they're doing, and he starts to point it out, but ultimately that's not his purpose. His purpose is to let the scriptures be fulfilled. And so he surrenders to them. He says, Peter, put your sword away. Stop lopping ears off of heads. I'm going with them. I know they're wrong, they're treacherous and violent, but I'm going with them. I'm going with them to fulfill the scripture. Now, two questions come to our minds that we need to answer. First is, what scripture? And the second is, why does it matter for us today? So first, what scripture is he talking about? There are hundreds of passages throughout the Old Testament that explicitly point ahead to the Messiah, to the coming Savior King that Jesus perfectly fulfilled and embodied. Depending on how you look at it and how you count, there's 48 that are definitely prophecies of specific characteristics, actions, facts about the Messiah, who he would be. And Jesus fulfills all of them. And then there's hundreds more that are just kind of foreshadowings of what the Messiah would be and what he would look like and how he would live. These are things like he would be born in Bethlehem. The Messiah would be preceded by a messenger who turned out to be John the Baptist. He would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Things like these, very specific things was prophesied that the Messiah had to fulfill, and Jesus fulfilled each and every one. So he might here have been referring to Psalm 41, 9, which says, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me, referring to Judas. Or he could have been thinking about Isaiah 53, 8, which says, By oppression and judgment, he, the coming Messiah, would be taken away. It's very likely he's thinking about Zechariah 13, 7, because he just quoted it a little bit earlier when he said to his apostles, his disciples, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Because that's exactly what happens next. Right after he says, I'm going with them, let the scriptures be fulfilled in verse 50, they all left him and fled just as the Old Testament prophesied would happen. And we get this really detailed story of a young man in verses 51 and 52. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. There's no explanation given as to why that detail was put in here. Scholars have debated and gone back and forth what's the purpose of it. I think Mark is just telling the story and adding in the details that he knows to be true. And this was how chaotic it was as everybody fled away from Jesus. This young man, they grabbed his cloak and he wriggled out of it and ran off naked so as not to be arrested. Whatever that's in there for, we see that it came true. Jesus surrendered to his arrest and everybody fled. And the point is that Jesus fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. That's the big idea. He fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior King who was to come. Now, some people would argue against that, and they would say, it's just a coincidence that some of these things seem to be true. 
But that can't be the case. It can't be a coincidence. A Christian mathematician named Peter Stoner, that was his name, he did a mathematical study on what would be the probability of any human being fulfilling just eight of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah coincidentally. It's astronomical. There's no chance anybody could fulfill them coincidentally. He, he said if you filled up Texas, the, if you laid over the surface of the state of Texas silver dollars two feet deep. So picture the state of Texas, huge amount of land, two feet deep with silver dollars, and you put an X on just one of them and mixed it all up in, in, on top of the state of Texas. And then you got a volunteer and blindfolded him and helicopter dropped him down somewhere in the state of Texas and told him to pluck up a silver dollar. The odds of him getting the one with the X are about the same as the odds of one person fulfilling just eight of the Old Testament prophecies pointing forward to the Messiah. It's just too detailed and too specific. There's no way that it's coincidental. Some people might say, well, Mark and the other New Testament writers must have changed the information to make it match. But that can't be it either because they wrote these books and distributed them while eyewitnesses were still around. These books were more like journalism than mythology. They were stating facts, knowing that there were still eyewitnesses around, naming eyewitnesses, pointing them out. Too many people would have said, no, that's not how it happened. Both Jesus' enemies who would have wanted to discredit it and Jesus' friends who would not have wanted the Jesus movement to start off on a lie, they would not have tried to do that. It doesn't make sense. Some people might think that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies on purpose because he knew the Old Testament And so he steered his life as such so that he would match the description of the Messiah. And that does make sense for some of them, like maybe this one, when he says, let the scriptures be fulfilled, and then he went willingly. But there's a lot of prophecies that there's no way he could have done that for. For example, he could not have controlled the fact that Judas earned 30 pieces of silver for betraying him. And yet that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. He could not have controlled his ancestry which was in a pretty detailed way prophesied. He could not have controlled where he was going to be born, when he was going to be born, the way he was going to be executed. He could not have arranged the fact that the Roman soldiers gambled over his clothes while he was being killed. That was prophesied in the Old Testament. He could not have controlled the fact that they didn't break any of his bones during crucifixion, which was also prophesied in the Old Testament. So there's no way that Jesus just on purpose tried to fulfill all of these. The last objection that I have come across is some people will say, well, you're taking those Old Testament prophecies out of context. They don't really say what you're saying that they say. You're retroactively trying to make them fit Jesus. But experts have studied these things, and time after time, they always hold up. That's not true. It's inescapable Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament scriptures. Everything they pointed to for who the Messiah would be, Jesus fulfilled them. Now, why does that matter? The apostles in the book of Acts often referred to these things. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. The scriptures said this. And I want to read to you why they said it mattered. In Acts chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, they were preaching to a crowd of Jewish people that they were hoping to convert. 
He said, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that, this, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So in other words, Jesus fulfilled all these things, just as I've been saying. And here's why they say it matters. Here's their conclusion. Repent, therefore. Because of all this, repent and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Jesus fulfilled everything in the Old Testament, pointing forward to the Messiah. And that gives us just yet another reason to repent, to turn from our former ways, to turn from the ways of this world and devote ourselves to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It's just another reason for us to rest in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, that our sins could be blotted out in him. It gives us yet another reason to live the Christian life, which is radically different than the ways of this world. New priorities, new passions, new pursuits. Yet another reason for us to have confidence when we share the gospel with unbelievers, that what we're saying is true and valid. It's not just philosophy or ideas. We can let the fact that Jesus fulfilled the scripture renew and strengthen our faith and commitment to him because it's radical to be a Christian. Jesus asks us to put all our eggs in this one basket. Now, if Jesus is not who he claimed to be, that is the most foolish thing you could possibly do. But if he is who he claims to be, it is the wisest thing you could possibly do. Now, there are many reasons to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. For me, first and foremost, is the resurrection, the historic fact of the resurrection. But that's not even the only reason. Here is another great reason to trust and follow Jesus fully. He is the Messiah. I was talking with some folks this morning about some people that they, they want to share the gospel with, but it's very difficult because they have this whole system of beliefs that they, they really believe in. And as we talked, it occurred to us, probably the best thing you could do is just ask, ask the question, why? Why do you believe that? They say, well, you can worship your way. I'm going to worship this way. Well, maybe the best thing we can do as Christian evangelists is to say, well, why do you believe that? They'll say, well, I believe that because of this. And then we can dig a little deeper. Why do you believe that? And why do you believe that? And why do you believe that? Because I really think that every other worldview eventually comes to an abyss down there beneath it, and there is no more why. There is no more good reason for it, except for Christianity. You can keep asking the question why as long as you want to because the undergirding foundations of Jesus Christ, it's rock. It holds true. We have every reason to believe in him. And therefore, we have every reason to obey him. Now, this is important because it's no small thing to be a Christian. And for us here right now, it can kind of feel like it's not a big deal. But back then, the people who originally received this, if they repented and turned and followed the way of Jesus Christ, they would have likely been disowned by their families, persecuted, maybe killed. And then there's parts in the world where that is the price that you pay for trusting and following Jesus. So you better believe that they're certain what they believe and why. It's a little bit trickier for us because we live in a culture that overall is pretty comfortable to at least say you're a Christian. 
It gets less comfortable the more you actually live as a Christian. But I just want to assure you, he holds up. One reason that we know, among many, is that he perfectly fulfills the Old Testament prophecies and foreshadowings of the Messiah. He is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited Savior King. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. So let's let our faith be strengthened as we go from here this week. Let's be strengthened against the, the temptations that assail us. Let's be strengthened against the distractions, the worldly, uh, the, the flow of the world that we get sucked into. Let's be strengthened together to trust and follow Jesus this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the, the beautiful way that throughout the Old Testament, you pointed forward to Jesus. It is such a gift to us. It is so reassuring, so strengthening to look back and see that this Jesus didn't just come out of thin air. Or let it give us solidity to our faith, a boldness in evangelism, a clarity. Please, in Jesus' name, amen.